Glad you're here. Glad to have those who are visiting with us as we continue our study of 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 19. Chapter 18 ended with what sad uh, event, which kind of, well, not kind of, it does bleed into uh, chapter 19. It was the death of whom? Absalom. And David is uh, very distraught over that. And that's how we ended our study last week. Uh, I want to probably read a little bit more tonight than what we typically read, and, and then we'll cut that short if we have to, depending on time. We're going to try to cover three chapters tonight, and we've been fairly successful in doing so. Uh, but the first uh, seven or eight verses here is an interaction between Joab and David. And it says, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. That's no surprise uh, based on everything we know about the character of David and the character of anybody that loses a child or loses someone else that they care about. So the victory that day was turned into mourning. This is verse 2 of chapter 19. For the people heard it said, The king is grieved for his son, and the people stole back into the city that day as people who are ashamed, steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out again, saying, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then, verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, we won't read. I'm going to trust that you can scan through it very quickly, or that you've read it already, or that you remember this from previous studies. Joab comes to uh, David, and what does he say in essence? What's his uh, claim or response? And if it's, as always, if it's something short, just say it loud enough for everyone to hear. If it's something a little bit longer, Brother Michael will try to get your microphone. But Joab says what? You care more about your rebellious son who died than all the people that tried to help you get the kingdom. Okay, very good. Because remember, Absalom was uh, treasonous. He was uh, trying to... Uh, compete for power with his father. And that rebellion was put down. And this is really not just the beginning, but it is in many ways a continuation of the uh, civil unrest and political unrest that these people are going through. We're going to see that develop even more so tonight and over the course of the next couple of weeks as we wrap up our study. And then as we get into the study of the kings, particularly 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12, we see it split wide open. But I think Mitch does a nice job of describing that what uh, Joab says is, we've just had this great victory. The people want to celebrate. They want to exalt their king. And you're over here crying. You're more concerned about the traitor put that in quotes, although there's, 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 you can take quotes away if you want, but look at the way David sees Absalom, and you're more concerned about that than you are about the victory that we have had. Uh, and he says, his advice is what in verse 7? Go out and do what? Yeah, go talk to the people. Go to the city gate which is the center of political authority. That's where people would come to receive judgments or to receive counsel from their monarch. Go and, uh, and everything will be great. And the king arose, verse 8, sat in the gate. They told all the people saying, there is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent 
uh, is the last kind of parenthetical statement of verse 8. So um, I have referenced before how much I, I love David, uh, not, oh, I love this David too, but I, I love this David. I love all of our Davids, so, so we have a lot of them. But I do love David, my coworker. Uh, but I was able to sit with him and uh, amidst our busy schedules, we talked about this for 15 minutes or so on Monday. But the question is, is Joab right or Joab wrong? And I put those in quotes because those are very heavy words, right and wrong, good and bad are, are, are sometimes charged words. Not that there's not good and bad and right and wrong in the Bible, but is Joab right or wrong in his rebuke? And the reason I ask that, I have my fairly strong opinion, especially now after our discussion, because I think we had, because David straightened me out. Uh, but um, you could read this a couple of different ways. At least the first time I read it, I was like, hmm, interesting. So open that up for 90 seconds worth of discussion. Depends on his motive, all right? And Brother Allen here. And certainly we're going to conclude our study tonight by talking about motives and Joab together. Brother Allen. I think Joab has earthly wisdom right here in what he's saying. I mean, he makes sense from that. It could sour some of the people. Mm -hmm. that, but I think from a more spiritual perspective, and as we see David really emblemizing the Lord here, that... The Lord doesn't rejoice in defeating those who are against him. He will defeat those who are against him, but it doesn't bring him pleasure to do so. Very good. So I think Joab has, he has earthly wisdom here in what he's saying, or reason, I should say. Okay, good. I'm glad that the question didn't offend anyone or throw anybody off, because it wasn't meant to do that. It was just, you can see this a couple different ways. Leanne, yes. It's, it's kind of, um, from our perspective, we would think it was wrong because it was his son. But from God's perspective, it was wrong to mourn Absalom because he was rebelling against because God. Because he was a rebel. He was rebelling against the people. He was rebelling against the main authority, which was the Lord. Okay. And David later, David earlier when he committed his sin was told this stuff was going to happen. So he already knew that this stuff would happen. It doesn't make it hurt any less, but... He is right because the people were victorious. They did what mm -hmm. God told them to do. Therefore, they should celebrate. But as a as a parent, yes, you can mourn, but you have to keep that to yourself because that's just the way it is. So there's a lot of Leanne has a lot of different threads going through uh, what's happening here, and I think that's 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 fine. This is this is a complicated situation politically, uh, family wise, spiritually. Yeah, brother Bruce. Well, it is, and and. Uh particularly when we look back at Nadab and Abihu, they had rebelled against God too. Uh, Absalom <clears throat> had rebelled against God's decision uh, to make Solomon uh, king. But yet Aaron was told not to weep for his children. And it's kind of interesting uh, here that uh, one was told not to weep and here uh, David when he probably should have been uh, pulling his people together who were disunited uh, wept and, and mm -hmm. eventually caused a few problems. That's a beautiful segue to my next point and that is the question is what is the state of affairs among Israel and its people and if you're listening to the second half of what Bruce was saying, not that the first half wasn't important but the second half 
but it's really on this point. What was going on in Israel this time, in the next couple of verses? They were quarreling. They were quarreling, disunion, um, di division. Yes, Brother Mitch. I mean, it's almost like they're back before they chose Saul as king. Right, they even they've say, reverted back. They chose Absalom as our king, and now he's dead, so what do we do? Yeah. Uh, verse 10 to, to thank you Michael we'll keep you working Michael uh, Absalom whom we anointed over us has died in battle interesting because we know that uh, what you want the goal should be who to be the anointer the Lord right you want the Lord to anoint David the Lord to anoint Solomon the Lord to anoint Christ as being the, the uh, savior, which is what the anointed actually means, is the idea of Christ here. Okay, um, verse, go down to verse 11. King David sent to Zadok and, Abath and Abiathar, the priests, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah. Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since words of all Israel have come uh, to the king, to his very house. You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? Now verse 13, why did David show kindness to Amasa? Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. Why does David show this uh, kindness, mercy? There's a couple of different words you could use. And let me, maybe I should have asked another question. Who is Amasa? What do we know about him from, from this point or from previous stories? He was Absalom's general. Okay. So he was on Absalom's side. So if you, if you divide it around the two, if you put left column and right column, uh, you have the good guys and you have the bad guys. He was associated with Absalom. But he says, I want you to be on my side and I want you to be a important person in my administration. Um, why? Unify the army. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, is the motive of David is he sees on the news every night that, the, that Israel is falling apart and is on the brink of disunion, to use a very kind of 19th century American term. And so I've got to bring everything back together. And it's a very much almost, for those of you that like Doris Kearns Goodwin, it's very much a team of rivals kind of thing. Uh, shake your head if you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I see. Okay, so I haven't completely lost it. Okay, so. But the whole idea is I'm going to take someone who was opposed to me and was in my way and bring them in. You know, the old adage is you keep your enemies, you keep your friends close and you keep your enemies closer. There may be some, but I, I like what Brian said. The idea of let's bring people together, show this unity. And then over the course of the next uh, five or six verses here, we see here that David's return is celebrated. Uh, particularly uh, verse, uh, verse 17, there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and 20 sons with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king, and the ferry boat went. So you see, it seems as if things are looking up, and uh, that David is having some success in doing what Brian was, was referencing there just a moment or so. 
All right, any comments before we get into verses 18 through 23 and we talk about um, two individuals by the name? Yes. It reminds me of what he did with Abner. You go yes. back to the beginning of 2 Samuel, he Chapter tried to do the same right? thing in uniting the kingdom. Yeah. So, <laughs> our goal tonight is to have Michael be there at the very last minute. So what, what Brian said is, is it goes back, harkens back to, I guess, chapter 3, I think it is, uh, where we see the situation with Abner. This will not be the last time we talk about Abner tonight, uh, because we're going to bring back our remembrance of Abner from chapter 3 in a few moments. But let's talk about these two characters, Shimei and Abishai. Uh, let's read here in verse 18. Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. He said, Do not let my lord impute iniquity me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord, the king, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today to the house of Joseph, of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord, the king. Uh, what do we, a reaction so far is what? Yeah, it, one of remorse. I'm sorry. I, I, I made a bad choice. Uh, please forgive me. Here I am. I'm ready to serve. I'm wearing a button and I have a bumper sticker that says David for King. And I drive that around everywhere. All right, so I'm, I'm on your side. All right. Then Abishai, but Abishai answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? How does David react without reading the next two verses? Or you probably have read them, or you can read them over the next five seconds. He says, what? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Yeah. He says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zuriah, talking about Abishai, that you should be adversaries? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? After all, things are looking up. Um, it's a very much uh, 19th, those of you that love political, uh, I like political history. Uh, so it's a very 1984. What was the ad? Those of you, Mitch wasn't even alive in 1984, were you? You really weren't? Oh. <laughs> but in 1984, the sun is rising. Anybody, anybody remember that ad, the sun is rising, 1984? Bruce, do you remember that? Well, it was, it was an ad for a political candidate. I won't mention his name because I don't want to offend anyone. Uh, but his name starts with an R and ends with an Egan. But Reagan's ad in 1984 was the sun's coming up. It's a new day in America. Yeah, you remember that. Now, Bruce, Bruce was alive in 1984. <laughs> but, but that's what David is doing here. He's saying things are, are looking good. We're not going to be killing anyone today. We've got more killing to, to do in chapters 20 and 21. <laughs> that, that's when the real killing starts. Uh, Therefore, the king said to Shemite, you shall not die. And the king swore it to him. So um, any other thoughts on that? I just think it's a very much, uh, David is very optimistic about the way things are looking right now. And he wants us to be uh, a cause for celebration and let's move forward as a country. All right, let's go ahead for the sake of time here um, and move on to the second half of chapter 19. Uh, and you have what I call the issue, uh, I use the word issue, of Mephibosheth and Ziba, uh, 24 through 30. Someone want to summarize what happens there? How does Mephibosheth appear? Unkempt. Unkempt, right? 
he hadn't shaved, uh, he, his feet were not cared for, uh, he had not washed his clothes, um, all this kind of stuff. Uh, so what happens here in these six verses without reading them, seven verses without reading them? He tries to explain the deception of Ziba. Correct. The serpent, right. Who said he was staying intentionally in the city. Right. When Ziba lied to him and then ran off with all the stuff. Very good. That's a good, good synopsis of this. There are some underlying issues and questions as to why and what and when here. Uh, there is some ambiguity in 2 Samuel on certain different stories. Um, I want to go ahead for the sake of time and look at the very last uh, two sections of uh, chapter 19, particularly verse 31, uh, where you have uh, three individuals. You have David, Barzillai, and Chimham, or sometimes it's called Chimhan in I believe First Chronicles may call him that, if I remember correctly, if I remember correctly. Uh, uh, how old was Barzillai? 80 years old. Uh, and he comes to the king, and verse 33, the king said, Come across me, and I'll provide for you while you are with me. But he says, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm 80 years old. Can I discern between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men? Uh, it's very much almost Ecclesiastes kind of thing. My, I can't see anymore and I can't taste anymore. And I, it's not because of COVID. Uh, I can't uh, hear things very well anymore. Uh, your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again that I may die in my city near the grave of my parents. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king. And the king says, Chimham shall cross over me and I will do for you what seems good, whatever your request is. Uh, the very last four verses is what I called a prelude to rebellion. Uh, just when things seem to be going great and the sun is rising and life is going great for David, we're going to have some issues here with a guy by the name of Sheba, which we'll get to here in just a second. Anything else on chapter 19? Because I know I went through that very quickly, uh, but we've only got 19 minutes left or 22 minutes left. Okay. All right, let's get into chapters 20 and 21. Uh, and this is where 12-year-old boys get excited in Bible class uh, because of things that are happening. Uh, anytime you have heads being hurled over walls or intestines coming out, it's, it's a sure sign of a, of a successful fifth grade Bible class. Uh, and that's what we have here. Let's talk about Sheba. What kind of person is Sheba or Sheba? I, I put up a rebel. That's the word I used. I think that's the word that the New King James uses here. Uh, well, describe him besides using the word rebel. From the tribe of Benjamin, what does that tell us? Good point, Derek. Who else was famously from the tribe? Yes. King Saul. King Saul is probably the most famous Benjaminite ever. Not probably. It is the most famous or infamous. Hey, look at it. Uh, so you have hard feelings. You have hard history. You have uh, family lines being crossed and all that stuff coming up here. And he says... He, he says, I'm not going to be um, mistaken. I want you to know exactly how I feel and how I want you to feel with this little three stanza poem 
that uh, my understanding in, in Hebrew would sound a whole lot more flavorful, uh, and that is, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So it's a, it's a battle call. It's a, it's a charge. It's a slogan uh, that he comes up with. Uh, and what ends up happening over the course of the next three to four verses? Is there unity or is there division? Yeah. And how many tribes end up deserting David? At least if I remember correctly, as I was reading. Well, presumably. All of them but down south, right? So you have what seems to me here where you have the northern tribes rebelling. You have... Uh, the people of the north saying we will do this but Judah of course says we're going to stick with David it seems here verse uh, uh, but the men of Judah from the Jordan as far as Jerusalem remain loyal to their king Um, look at verse 4 the king said to Amasa who was Amasa? he was Absalom's key figure right? but remember David showed kindness to him Back in chapter 19, like we talked about a few moments ago, he says, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. Uh, Let's see, look on my notes here. And who is supposed to help uh, Amasa putting down this rebellion? A lot of A's tonight. Tonight's lesson. Abishai, right? So Amasa and Abishai are to put down the rebellion uh, verse 6, David said to, to Abishai, now Sheba, or Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more harm than Absalom. What is he saying there? And this kind of goes back to something that Alan touched on at the outset of our study. What's, what's he saying there? More harm than Absalom. Yeah. David is smart enough to know that, and as, as any good leader, especially an emperor or a monarch, that if, if, if I allow a little bit of division and then more division and then more division, eventually I'm going to lose my seat and then I'm going to lose my head and bad things are going to happen. So he understands that there are serious repercussions for not putting down this rebellion. Who ends up dying over the course of the next six verses? Amasa ends up dying. And, and who kills Amasa? Joab. Uh, when in doubt in this part of uh, uh, 2 Samuel, when something bad happens, Joab's somewhere involved in it. Uh, and it goes back to, I like what Alan said, I wrote in my notes here, this idea of the earthly wisdom, the political wisdom versus the spiritual point of view. And so the killing of Amasa. Uh, how someone described that in 30 seconds how did Amasa die it wasn't in a noble fight right Joab goes up to say hi his sword falls out and while he's saying hi he stabs him with the sword right very good thank you Michael Um, yeah that's exactly what happened Uh, and there seems to be if you read kind of between the lines there oh look I dropped my sword oh I'm sorry about that let me help you bend over you know, whatever. And then he stabs him. Stabs him where? In the gut, in the stomach. That's where all the good stabbings happen in 2 Samuel. And the new King James uses the, the phrase, 
Uh, and if you're squeamish, I apologize if you've already eaten or are yet to eat. His entrails poured out on the ground, and it did not strike him again. But they end up finding him, uh, uh, and what do they? He, they find this bloody mess. And so, what do they do? They take a garment or blanket of some sort, cover him up, and as only could happen three thousand years ago, onward. Let's keep on going. We got fighting to do. Tough times. So what ends up happening is this pursuit of Sheba or Sheba continues, verses 13. And then how does the story end for Sheba or Sheba? He ends up being dead. Uh, Someone talk about the death of Sheba or Sheba. They go to Abel and Beth Maka, uh, these villages, uh, and they, the, the people of David basically lay siege to the city, do they not? And they're ready to burn the place down. And depending on how you read in the version from which you're reading, well, the word that's used battered the wall to throw it down. So they begin the process of ripping the wall down. And Yes, Brother Mitch. It's, it's just, again, pointing out Alan's point of uh, Joab and his earthly wisdom, right? The point of least resistance, um, which is, do we expend all these resources tearing down the city? Well, if he's not going to come out, yeah, we do that and we destroy him and we get it done. Absolutely. If we can talk to this lady and she says, okay, we'll take care of it for you, that all we want is him gone. So if you kill him and show us the proof, then we're done and we'll move Absolutely. on. And the Bible does not give us a name. It just, the New King James says a wise woman. It gives new uh, meaning to wise women. Uh, but the wise woman cried out and she says, Hey, why are you tearing down our walls? Why are you here? And said, so we're here for Sheba or Sheba. And so what does she say? And she says, hold the phone. Be right back. <laughs> She comes back, and what does she throw over? Nate, Nate said, what she throw over the wall? His head. His head. There you go. And so uh, they blow the trumpet and say, we've got it. Uh, I love verse 21. The woman said to Joab, watch. His head will be thrown to you over the wall. Woman in her wisdom went to all the people. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. And then Joab returned to the king in Jerusalem. A lot of different things we could learn from that. Uh, I'm not sure uh, some of those are the most pleasant things to learn. But reactions, aside from the, the humorous side or the, the, the ugly side, as, as one of our elders who will remain nameless said, Joab is one tough dude. <laughs> so not, he, that's right. Any, any other thoughts before we get to, to 21 and wrap up? Got about 12 minutes here. Okay, let's go to chapter 21. Um, let's talk about David and the Gibeonites. Who are the Gibeonites? Where did they come from? What kind of people are they?
So the Gibeonites are a ancient people. Uh, they go back to what band of people there in verse 3, I think it is. Verse 2. To the Amorites. And I think we go back to, I should have put it up there. Uh, someone correct me. I think Joshua chapter 9. Am I right? Joshua 9. Where you see a treaty with these people. And the book of Joshua is, is not, cannot be simplified in this simple of a way. But in many ways, what summarize it by saying the people were to go into Canaan, to the land that they had been promised, and do what with the people that were there? Eradicate them. Not create treaties with them. Now Saul, uh, I was reading today, I love the way that it was worded, with his on-again, off-again diligence to God. Sometimes he would, he'd go and say, I'll execute them all. And then other times he'd say, I'm not going to execute any of them. Or I'll execute some and save some for, for, the, for, for whatever cause I want to save them for. Uh, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. Uh, that's in chapter 21 and verses 1 and 2. That takes you back again to uh, other passages uh, elsewhere. Um, how, what's the payment to, to stop this bloodletting, to stop the fight from happening? Uh, my Bible uses the term avenges. David avenges the Gibeonites by doing what? <clears throat> Giving up what? Seven individuals, all of whom were sons of Saul. Going back to what Ms. Sherry said a few moments ago. Uh, the Bible specifically says we don't want money. You can't write us a check that's big enough. Verse 4 says, no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. We don't want just random people. I'm not sure if they'd read chapter 20, but we don't want heads just flying over our walls. But we want seven men. So he says, whatever you say, verse 4, I will do it. As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, verse 5, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king says, I will give them. But, verse 7, who gets spared? Mephibosheth, okay? Uh, he is spared because of the Lord's oath that was between them. That goes all the way back to chapters 4 and chapters 9 uh, in the text. Uh, so the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, and five sons of Michael, the daughter of, or Michal, the daughter of Saul, depending on how to pronounce it, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahoathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. This is verse 9. And they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest. Okay? Um, how does Rizpah react to this? Not, not, she's not delighted at all. This is a very sad event. Uh, and so David reacts to Zizpah. Oh, death of seven men of Saul. David's reaction to Rizpah. What is his reaction to Rizpah? How does he treat her? I think he treats her with respect. Because 
Yeah. Yeah. As, as much respect as you could at this time. Say, so I'll tell you what, I'll bring the bones all together, have them all buried together in kind of a family plot. Uh, and that was, uh, that was important then, uh, and that's important even still today in many cultures, that you are buried with your family. Uh, and that's the way he treated uh, her. And then the last uh, half or third of chapter 21 is about when in doubt in First or Second Samuel, when you're talking about the enemy of the Lord's people, it starts with a P but doesn't sound like a P. It's the Philistines. And so you have David and his victories over the Philistine giants in the last eight verses there of chapter uh, 21. Uh, we'll come back to that if we have time. We've got about six minutes left. What I wanted to do, though, is to go back to Joab for just a moment and go outside of the narrative for just a moment and just have some additional thoughts. Uh, and then we can come back and talk about anything you want to talk about in the first 21 chapters. Um, I mentioned that tonight's lesson is brought to you by the letter A. And identify the three high-profile men that Joab has killed. Can we remember who they are? Who's the first one? Abner. That goes all the way back to chapter, I think it's chapter 3. Someone look that up for me. I think it's 3. Uh, but he kills Abner. And that was troublesome. Uh, who was the second A? Absalom. We talked about that uh, last week and even the week before, the prelude to that. And then tonight, Amasa. So, um, not to give too far away as to where I'm going with this, but let me give it away where I'm going with this. Then is consider what I would call the character, uh, uh, the methods with which he killed these people, particularly with Amasa. This is in a culture where, um, you know, if someone, if you're fighting for your life and you just, and you kill the other person, uh, even civil societies and Virtually every culture understand that, uh, okay, you were protecting your life or the life of someone else. Um, but back then, 3,000 years ago, you live in a culture where uh, you don't want to die at the hands of a woman. You don't want to die uh, with it not being your valiant effort. Uh, you know, you'd rather be dead than die a coward, so to speak. So it's a kind of a different time period. So what am I thinking? What, what do I mean by that last statement? Hopefully you can maybe read through my brain. He kills them all. Does so generally in fashions that are not noble or fair. Uh, you know, he did not give Amasa a fighting chance, right? Uh, tricked him, reading between the lines there. So those are all some things to think about. Yes, Linda. Thank you, Michael. Well, when I was reading about Amasa, the first thing that, that popped into my head was, wow, this sounds really familiar. Mm -hmm. So he grabs Amasa, or Joab grabs Amasa with his right hand by his beard mm -hmm. and stabs him with his left hand. But in the process, he's, you know, he's, as you put it, he's, you know, hey, I dropped my sword. Let me help you pick it up. Yep. Similarly, Ehud 
was also apparently left-handed and drove his sword all the way through the stomach of King Eglon. Yep, absolutely. In telling him, you know, hey, I've got a message for you. I've got a message for you. Yeah. So when bearded men come to you with messages, or wise women, so tonight we got a lot of people. I, I trust our bearded men, and we've got a lot of wise women that I'm not fearful of. So, okay. Uh, anything else before I get to very briefly some lessons learned, which we've kind of talked about? Yes, uh, Leanne, right there. We've got uh, three minutes left here. They died. Um, and, and not a noble death, but an insulting death. Because yeah, it is insulting. Because you touched somebody's word. beard back then, or you you uh, you had them hound by their hair or something like that, that was a, considered to be a disgraceful That's thing. That was considered to, to be humiliating. So they died an honorable death. They died humiliating deaths. Thank you. Okay, a lot of lessons that we've learned. Lesson number one is the one that we've talked about like every week for nine weeks now and that is there are always consequences to sin i think uh, leanne talked about that uh, a few minutes ago uh, the point being saul's disobedience to the lord david's sinful choices with bathsheba uh, choices with uriah all those choices have consequences that can sometimes last an awful long time and that's true with sin today with our reputation uh, we were talking with the young people from, maybe, am I getting senile? Did I talk about this on Sunday in a sermon? I'm going to talk about it again. <laughs> but we had a young people study and we were talking about reputation and how it's, it's, it takes a while to build that reputation up, but it's relatively easy to do that and then it takes seconds to lose it. And there's consequences to our actions, including to our reputation. Uh, and then secondly, without God as, as the center or at the center of a person's life, anything wrong can be envisioned and happen. And you have all kinds of ugliness happening because, well, now sometimes ugliness happens because of diligence to doing what God asks. There's righteous killings in Second Samuel and elsewhere. But just think about all the, the unfortunate things that didn't have to happen and that don't have to happen in our lives if we keep God where he needs to be. All right, anything else in the final 30 seconds? Yes, Brother Sam. All the way up in front. Microphone's coming. You get, we, we still got 30 seconds. You're good. So how long did it... We, we talked before about, about how long it took for God to bring vengeance for what David had done... Mm-hmm. How long now did it take for God to come out with vengeance for what happened to Gibeon? It's taken a while, hasn't it? Almost 40 years, maybe? I'm not sure exactly, but that's a long time. And uh, I think it just goes to show that God can do what He wants whenever it's convenient for Him. Um... But if we don't get in a situation where God needs to do that to us, we won't have to worry. Yeah. That reminds me, uh, that's a great point. We don't know, well, we, we know that God will exact his justice. Just may not be in our timeline or in our time frame. That's a good point. All right. We'll stop there. Thank you all very much.